Welcome to the Baptist Pulpit. This podcast is designed to introduce to the audience Baptist preachers, both living currently in America or across the world, and also to introduce classic speakers, men of the past. There were Baptist preachers that have inspired men like myself for years to preach the Word of God. And they also, through their preaching, highlight Baptistic principles. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. I challenge you to go to the website, baptistpulpit.com, look around at our podcast. I have a couple of them, Baptist Pulpit, Baptist Vices, Moment of Ministry. There's other guys that have podcasts and some authors that are featured there. Our speaker for today is Dr. Ron Comfort. He was born in a Roman Catholic home in Elmira, New York. From the ages of 7 to 15, he sang on radio, television, stage, and small nightclubs. And he has a fascinating testimony. His testimony was featured on Unshackled. And so I'm pretty sure you could look it up and find his testimony. It was a two-part series. And at the age of 15, in a citywide crusade in Asheville, North Carolina, he was saved. And he felt God's call to preach very shortly after that. He worked his way through seven years at Bob Jones Academy and then university. He graduated and he immediately entered full-time evangelism. And he had continued in this ministry since 1961. He's preached in 49 states and many foreign countries and has had well over 1,600 uh, crusades. If you don't know what revival crusades are, look that up. Uh, evangelist Ron Comfort can tell you about those. And Dr. and Mrs. Uh, Comfort have been married since 1963, and he's the founder and chancellor of Ambassador Baptist College in Lattimore, North Carolina. It was founded in 1989 for the express purpose of training men and women for full-time Christian service. Pray that the message by Dr. Comfort will be a blessing to you today. As you're standing, take your Bible, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I sure appreciate all these young men here at the front. And uh, you know what that tells me? That tells me that your pastor is investing his life in these young men. And uh, I don't know of ten pastors in America that I've been with that take the time to mentor young men like this. And I appreciate it so much, Pastor. I really believe this statement with all my heart. The test of our life is what we leave to the next generation. And uh, this is the next generation down here. First Thessalonians chapter 4, please. Again, let me encourage you to remain in your seat during the preaching to eliminate any unnecessary distraction. Will you notice, please, verses 13 through 18? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord 
that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Thank you very much. You may be seated. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have perhaps the first real clear passage in the entire Bible on what is called the rapture. I believe that one may go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he will only find two passages that deal with the rapture. That's John 14 and verse 3, And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the rapture. Again, John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. That's the rapture. You say, now wait a minute, are you telling me that in the four Gospels there are only two passages on the second coming? No, I'm not saying that. Now, uh, uh, some people have been saved for years and are not aware of this simple truth, that the second coming of Christ is in two phases. When He comes, for those of us who are saved, His feet will not touch the earth, but we will be raised to meet Him in the air. That's called the rapture. Somebody objects and says, now wait a minute, where do you find that word rapture in your English Bible? You don't find it. It is what is called a transliteration. And that is simply a fancy word for saying that you take a foreign word and you make it an English word. And it comes from the Latin word rapto. Rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, caught up together with them in the clouds. So we have the rapture. After the rapture, there will be seven years of tribulation when all hell breaks loose on earth. By the way, tonight I'm preaching on Act 1 of the drama. On Thursday night, I'm preaching on Act 2 of the drama. You've got to be here both nights to get the entire drama. So there's the rapture when the medium in the air, seven years of tribulation. Then after the seven years of tribulation, Jesus is coming back to earth. That is called the revelation or the second advent. Those of us who are saved are coming back to earth with Him. Zechariah 14 and verse 2 says, His feet will touch the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split in two. By the way, several years ago, a group of businessmen were going to build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. They thought that before they did, they would have some geologists to survey the spot where they were going to build their hotel. You know what the report of the geologist was? You better not build a hotel on the Mount of Olives. There is a flaw in the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives could split at any time. Well, thank God I didn't need geologists to tell me that. I knew that, didn't you? All right, there's the rapture when we meet Him in the air, seven years of tribulation, and then when He comes back to earth, that is called the revelation. 
Now, let me explain the statement I made about two passages concerning the rapture. Ladies and gentlemen, as you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you probably will find over a hundred passages on the second coming. But the vast majority of them deal with the second phase of the second coming, the revelation and not the rapture. Now, as far as I can tell, there are only two verses in the entire Bible that mention both phases of the second coming in the same verse. For instance, Titus 2 and verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope, that's the rapture, and the glorious appearing, that's the revelation, of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, Second Timothy 4 and verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing... That's the rapture, and at His kingdom, that's the revelation. Now, obviously, what we are concerned with tonight from this passage is what is called the rapture. And I want you to notice from our text tonight four things about the rapture. Number one, it is a sure event. Will you notice verse 16? It says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. It is a sure event. First Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. So that she come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. Philippians 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 14, that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and at His kingdom. Again, Colossians 3 and verse 4, but when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. It is a sure event. Years ago, I was preaching in Okinawa. And the pastor came to one of his military men who was a computer expert. And he said this, he said, Do you realize the day they hung Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, there were 33 prophecies fulfilled in one man in one day. He said, Would you do me a favor? Would you feed into the computer and tell me what the chances are that 33 prophecies could be fulfilled in one man in one day? You know what the computer read out? The chances that 33 prophecies could be fulfilled in one man in one day were less than one in 87, comma, with 93 zeros after it. Now think of that. One of the greatest proofs that this is the Word of God is the prophetic test. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, there were over 330 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled? But listen carefully. For every one promise on the first coming of the Messiah in the Bible, you will find 20 promises on the second coming of Christ. Did you know that? 
In the New Testament, there are 7,959 verses. No less than 300 verses in the New Testament alone speak of the second coming of Christ. Do you know that in this book there is more said about King Jesus than is said about baby Jesus? There is more in this book about Jesus on a throne than even Jesus on a cross. He is coming again. Several years ago I read an interesting article where a group of scholars, quote-unquote, had made the deduction that Jesus really did not teach He was coming the second time. Now, there is a Hebrew word to describe that. Baloney. Baloney. Now, folks, I will let you be the judge as to whether or not the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming the second time. All right, now follow me, please. Every chapter in First and Second Thessalonians speaks of the second coming of Christ. Follow me. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 19. For what is her hope, her joy, her crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? 1 Thessalonians 3.13 To the end that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And you are trouble, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letters from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. And the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Jesus Christ. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. And any preacher in Indianapolis that denies the second coming has to rip those two books right out of his Bible. Had a lady in Pittsburgh come to me and she said, Brother Comfort, I went to my Presbyterian preacher and I asked him if he believed in the second coming. He told me he didn't believe it, but it didn't matter whether you believed it or not. Now, what do you think about that? I wish that woman would have had enough courage to say, Preacher, it doesn't matter whose seminary you've been to, it does matter whether you believe it or not. And she said, Brother Comfort, she said, I've been in that church ever since I've been knee high. She said, I can't leave that church now. I said, God pity a person who loves his denomination more than he loves the Bible. Now, folks, I was not reared in an independent Baptist home. I was reared in a Roman Catholic home. At the age of 15, I was born again. After studying the Word of God, I became an independent Baptist by conviction. But I'll tell you something. 
I love my Bible a whole lot more than I love the tag Independent Baptist. And if the time, Brother Ward, ever comes when Independent Baptists are known for their denial of the second coming, I'll call myself by another name. I am not married to a denominational tag. I have one word of advice for anybody in this building tonight who goes to a church where you never hear the second coming preached about. Get out of that church. And get in a church where they believe and preach the second coming. Number one, it is a sure event. Notice please again 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16. Number two, it is a sudden event. Verse 16, it says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That Greek word means a military command. All right, what's that military command going to be? You remember His command to Noah was come in. His command to Lot was come out. His command to you and to me who are saved is going to be come up. And every child of God is going higher. Revelation 4 and verse 1, And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither. One day Jesus is coming in the air. He's shouting, Come up hither! And I'm climbing an invisible stairway to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Somebody said, that's as quickly as you can bat your eye. No, it's quicker than that. It's quicker than that. Let me call something to your attention. The word twinkling is the same word from which we get the word atom. An atom is the smallest unit of matter. The twinkling is the smallest unit of time. It is not the blinking of the eye. Folks, it is the sparkling of the eye. It is less than one one thousandth of a second. Can you imagine that? In less than one one thousandth of a second, I am changed from a body of mortality into a body of immortality. I am changed from a body of corruption into a body of incorruption in a moment in the twinkling line. Science tells us today that the light from the farthest star has probably never reached the earth. They estimate that the light from the farthest star is probably 500 million light years away. Girls, are you listening, please? So what does that mean? Light travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. Not per minute, but per second. And it would take 500 million years going at the rate of 186,000 miles per second from the light from the farthest star to ever reach the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Where's heaven? Heaven's beyond the farthest star. Where's Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. My dear friend, it is not going to take Jesus 500 million light years to come back and get His little children. He's coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Do you know when Jesus Christ was on earth, 
He told His disciples He was coming again. He never told them when. But do you know that He intimated He may come in their lifetime? Did you know that? For instance, John 14 and verse 3, And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Again, Luke 12 and verse 40, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Again, Mark 13, 35 and 36, Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour the master of the house cometh, at even or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And you know what I believe, ladies and gentlemen? Every single disciple in Jesus' day was expecting Christ to come in his lifetime. I don't believe they were going out to the cemetery and buying them a plot of ground for their grave. And I'll let you in on a secret. I ain't either, folks. I think I'm going to cheat the undertaker via the uppertaker. See, and I believe the teaching of the New Testament is the child of God is not to look forward to dying. He should look forward to the second coming of Christ. Every disciple in Jesus' day was. For instance, Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. James said in James 5, 8 and 9, Be ye therefore patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The judge standeth before the door. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, But when the chief shepherd shall appear, then shall ye receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. John said in 1 John 2:28, And now little children abide in him, that when he may appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. When I ask you tonight, are you looking for Jesus to come in your lifetime? I don't believe that there is any more purifying doctrine in the entire Bible than the message of the second coming of Christ. A lady came to me years ago after hearing me preach on the second coming, and she said, Now, Brother Comfort, she said, You're a young man. Now, I will admit she had a measure of discernment. She said, You're a young man. She said, I'm an old lady. She said, Jesus may come in your lifetime. She said, but I don't believe He's coming in my lifetime. You know what the Bible calls that? Three letters. S-I-N. And the reason some of you are living like you are living, you're not expecting Jesus to come in your lifetime. Now, somebody has said this. Every admonition in the Bible has its root cause in the second coming. Now, what does that mean? In other words, God commands, do this, why? Because Jesus is coming again. Do this, why? Because Jesus is coming again. And almost every time in the Bible you have a prophetic statement, you have a practical application that accompanies that prophetic statement. Let me prove that to you. Keep your finger here in 1 Thessalonians and turn, please, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Number one, the second coming of Christ will produce the inward look of preparation. All right, notice 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All right, that's a prophetic statement, right? 
All right, verse 3, here's the practical application. Every man that hath this hope in him, what? Purifieth himself, even as he also is pure. You know what that means? If you're looking for the second coming, your pastor's not going to have to get up here and browbeat you into giving up your dirty habits. If you're looking for the second coming, you'll get rid of dirty habits so you won't be ashamed when Jesus comes again. Again, Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. Do you know how you define Hollywood? Ungodliness and worldly lust. Pastor, I don't have time to argue with a person who tells me they're saved, and they ask me if a Christian ought to go to Hollywood movies. I don't have time to talk about that. Get a brain, ladies and gentlemen. Do you believe that we ought to support an industry that wants to put a padlock on every Bible-believing church in this country? Not on your life. Do you believe we ought to support an industry that has made homosexuality normal and acceptable? Not on your life. And I want to say Hollywood doesn't have one thing I need nor do I want. The Passion of Christ, Disney World, Disneyland, Jurassic Park, the whole mess, they don't have one thing I need nor do I want. I had a young man in a Christian school in Wilmington, North Carolina, come to me. He said, Brother Comfort, he said, I really believe my parents are saved. I had no question about that. But he said, they want to get me all these things. He said, they work 12, 14 hours a day to get me all these things. He said, Brother Comfort, I don't want things. He said, I want parents. And he said, do you know that we have HBO Hell's box office coming into our living room? He said, I have a television set in my bedroom. By the way, Christian parent, if you let your children have a television set in their bedroom unmonitored by you, you are very indiscerning. Very indiscerning. He said, Brother Comfort, night after night I have laid on my bed and I have watched nudity on the screen. Four times I have gone to my daddy's dresser drawer and I've taken out his 357 Magnum and I have put the barrel to my head and I have spinned the barrel and I've said, Now God, if you want to take my life, may the barrel stop where the bullet is. And he said, Four times I have squeezed the trigger. And nothing has happened. I want to say in no way is a mom or dad looking for the second coming who will allow that kind of garbage in their living room. So number one, it will produce the inward look of occupation, uh, preparation. Number two, it will produce the outward look of occupation. Romans 13, 11, and 12, And that knowing the time, it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Young people, listen to me, please, and look at me. 
You are very, very foolish if you waste your life making money and living for material things. Very foolish. You see, there is joy in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you young people to know I'm not doing this tonight for a love offering. I am doing it because it is the joy of my life and the joy of serving God is the strength of my life. I have been in this thing 45 years and I've never gotten used to seeing people come down the aisle and get saved. Preacher, it, it goes beyond my thinking that because of a 40 or a 45 minute sermon, a man comes down the aisle and gets saved. He's on the brink of divorce with his wife. His wife gets saved. Their children get saved. When they grow up, they go away to Bible college. They get in the ministry and their children get saved. And it's simply because of a 40 or 45 minute sermon. Thank God for that. I've never been able to get over the thrill of seeing brands plucked from the burning. And young people, you need to make an investment in that. Life is too short to waste it on materialism. The United Nations recognizes 250 countries. They say that there are 24,000 people groups. Now listen carefully. 54% do not have one word of the Bible in their language. Do you know that 94% of the world are non-English speaking and we've got 91% of the missionaries and preachers preaching to 6% of the world's population. 85% of the missionaries are in 25 countries around the world. And I tell my preacher boys this. One of my prayers is that God will put a vision in the life of a young man and he'll say, by God's grace, I'm going to be like Adoniram Judson. I'm going to be like Hudson Taylor. And I'm going to venture out doing something for the glory of God that nobody else has ever done. Young people, the fields are white in the harvest. Do you realize as we sit here tonight, over three billion people out there have never heard the name of Jesus Christ one time? Do you know between Washington, D.C. and Boston, Massachusetts, more than one-fourth of the population of the United States are living? More than one-fourth. And most of them have never heard the simple plan of salvation. Isn't there some young person in this building tonight who will say, Lord, in light of the soon return of Christ, here am I. Send me. So number one, it's a sure event. Number two, it's a sudden event. Go back, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Number three, it is a separating event. Latter part of verse 16. It says, The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now there's a qualifying phrase in that passage, two words. The words in Christ. Doesn't say those who are in faith Baptist church. It says those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ tonight? First seven years of my life, I was in the Roman Catholic Church, but I was not in Christ. The next eight years of my life, I was in a Southern Baptist Church, but I was not in Christ. Do you know, Pastor, I traveled the state of North Carolina singing in meetings for a Southern Baptist evangelist, and if Jesus had come during those eight years, I would have been left behind. 
Now, I wonder tonight, do you have a theology in your head without having a Christ in your heart? Now, parent, let me suggest something. If your child ever comes to you and says, Mom and Dad, I know you say I made a profession when I was a little boy or a little girl, but I don't remember one thing about it. Please don't tell them they're saved. Please don't tell them they're saved. You see, what we have done in our anxiety to get our children to make a profession early, we have got them to parrot phrases. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, I want Him to come into my heart. And many times they go through the whole scenario never seeing themselves as a guilty, hell-deserving sinner. My wife has the young ladies when I have the preacher boys on Wednesday. And she has all of the young ladies write a testimony of their salvation. Pastor, 65% of them said they made a profession as a little boy or a little girl, but they were really saved later on in life. So here's what I'm saying. If you can't remember a time and a place when you saw yourself as a hell-deserving sinner, then you need to be saved tonight. Because if Jesus comes tonight and you're not in Christ, you're going to be left behind. Now, turn over a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians. How many of you have read or seen the video left behind? Would you raise your hand, please? Almost everybody. That's the response I get in every local church. Now, I think the video and the stories are good in one aspect. They make people aware of the second coming who have never been aware of the second coming. And that's wonderful. But there is a grave doctrinal error that gives an unsaved person a false hope. And I want to clear up that tonight. All right, notice please 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, before we get into this passage... The video that I saw, there is a pilot who is unsaved, right? He is having an affair with a stewardess on the airplane. The pilot's wife is saved. She tries to get him saved. He wants nothing to do with it. He's got a son who is saved and a daughter who is unsaved. Well, uh, the wife, in the course of trying to get her husband saved, tells him about the rapture. One day Jesus is going to come. Those who are saved will go to meet Him, and those who are not will be left behind to go through the tribulation. All right, in the video that I saw, one day the pilot is on the plane, and he's going across the country, and all of a sudden cataclysmic things begin to be announced over his radio. And then a stewardess comes to the cockpit, and she said, Sir, many of the passengers are gone. So he contacts his home. His wife is not there. His son is not there. And finally, he puts it all together and he says, that's the rapture. That's the rapture. That's what my wife told me about. So in the video, the pilot gets saved, his daughter gets saved, and an evangelical preacher who is left behind gets saved. Are you listening? It ain't going to happen, folks. It ain't going to happen. Now, Somebody asked me this question, will there be any saved in the tribulation? Let me read the Scripture and then answer the question. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. Even him, Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, get it, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, verse 11. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion 
that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, look this way. Here's the question. Will there be any saved in the tribulation? Millions upon millions upon millions will be saved. One day Russia will invade Israel. According to Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, two-thirds of Israel is wiped out, leaving one-third. All right, according to Romans 11, 26 and 27, that one-third of Israel that is left will be saved. All Israel will be saved that is left. All right, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, they'll look upon Him whom they appear, claim Him as their Messiah, and a nation will be born again as in a day. All right, so all Israel is saved. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. Through Israel's conversion, 144,000 Jews, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but Jews will take the gospel of the kingdom. And through their preaching, a multitude of Gentiles, which no man could number, will be saved. So are you listening? Millions upon millions upon millions will be saved. However, it will not be anybody in this crowd tonight. Why? Verse 10, Because you've received not the love of the truth now that you might be saved. Verse 11, For this cause, God will send you strong delusion that you should believe a lie. So here's the truth. Ma'am, you've got a baby in the nursery tonight. And you're not saved. If Jesus comes in the course of this service, the baby goes to meet Christ, and you're left behind, eternally separated from that child. Here's a man and his wife in bed together. Hypothetically, Jesus comes in the middle of the night. All right, the wife's in Christ. The husband is not. The wife goes to meet Christ. The next morning, the husband gets up. He sees his wife's bedclothes lying unnaturally behind. So he runs in the kitchen. Honey, are you in there? She's not there. He runs in the living room. Honey, are you in there? She's not there. Why? She's in Christ. He's not. She's gone. He's left behind. And his eternal destiny is already settled. All right, in closing, go back please to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Somebody said the most beautiful words in a man's sermon are the words, and in closing, well, here they are, and in closing... Notice, please, number one, it's a sure event. Number two, it's a sudden event. Number three, it is a separating event. And number four, bless God, it is a sublime event. Verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It is a sublime event. Let me call something your attention. There are two Greek words for the word air. One can stand on Mount Olympus in Greece and point downward. And the Greeks have a word for air, which means below the mountaintops. He can stand on that same mountain and he can point upward. And the Greeks have a word for air, which means above the mountaintops. Now get it. Do you know what the word for air is in verse 17? Jesus is not coming in the air above the mountaintops. He's coming in the air below the mountaintops. You say, why is that important? Ephesians 2 and verse 2, the devil is the prince of the power of the 
air. You know what air He's the prince of the power of? He's the prince of the power of the air below the mountaintop. So get it. One day, King Jesus is going to invade Satan's domain. He's going to snatch away His little children. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It'll mean three things. Number one, it'll mean the reunion with our loved ones. Years ago, when we lived in West Virginia, my wife was expecting a baby she'd carried over ten months. She had previously had two miscarriages, and we were very apprehensive that this baby may be born deformed. So I canceled my next meeting, stayed home the week, and the baby still was not born. I had a meeting scheduled four years prior in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I knew I had to honor that commitment. So I started the meeting Sunday morning. Sunday night after the service, my mother-in-law called me. She said, Ron, Joyce is going to have the baby, and the top of the baby's head has not been formed. And the doctor said the baby cannot possibly live. Joyce doesn't know anything about it. And she said it would be good if you got here before the baby was born to comfort Joyce at that time of grief and heartache. So immediately I got in my car, drove all night long to get home. I got home at 6 o'clock in the morning. The baby was born at 3 o'clock in the morning. Rachel Jan lived 10 minutes. And in God's wisdom and grace, he saw fit to reach down and pluck my little jewel in ornament heaven with Rachel Jan. My wife carried Rachel Jan ten and a half months. She never got to touch her. She never got to see her. She never got to hold her. As I stood by the grave of my little baby, my pastor read 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58. And folks, it never meant as much to me in my entire life as it did that day. And in my heart, I stood by that grave and I said, Rachel, honey, I've never seen you before, but I love you. And when Jesus comes on the way up, I'm going to tell you I love you. You know, one of the greatest relaxations of my life was after service like this. We would go back to our trailer. Most of you are aware that we pulled a trailer across America for 22 years to keep our family together. My wife homeschooled our three daughters over a period of 21 years. Each one of them, their 12 grades in school. Excuse me, 13 kindergarten plus her 12 grades. So she was involved in homeschooling over a period of 21 years. She is a candidate for the martyr's crown. But anyway, I, I used to look forward to after the service, I'd go back to my trailer and my girls would put on their bedclothes and they'd say, Daddy, it's love time. And all three of them would run and jump on me and they'd hug me and kiss me and I'd hug them and kiss them and they'd say, Daddy, I love you and I'd reciprocate. Oh, I look forward to that. I used to look forward after the service uh, watching our little three-year-old waddler waddle out of the nursery. I'd be standing at the front shaking hands with somebody out of the corner of my eye. I'd see that little three-year-old waddler. And I knew what Robin was going to do. I knew she would come down the aisle and she would wrap her arms around my knees. Now, I have to wrap my arms around her knees. And she'd look up into my eyes and she'd say, Daddy, I love ooh. And when she said that, I tingled all over. I wish you could have heard our trailer before we went to bed at night. It sounded like the Waltons. Uh, 
my, my oldest daughter, Rhonda, would lead it out and she'd say, Daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. Good night, everybody. And then Becky would say, Daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. Good night, everybody. And then Robin would say, Daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. Good night, everybody. And then sometimes they'd say, let's do it again. So they'd go through it again. Daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. Good night, everybody. And honestly, sometimes after going through it twice, they'd say, all right, all together on three. One, two, three. Daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. Good night, everybody. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, never one time was I tempted to say, would you shut up and go to sleep? Never one time. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Every time I was home from meetings, I would go by the cemetery where little Rachel Jan is buried. Our bank was over there, and so obviously when we were home, I had to go to the bank. And I never went by that cemetery. But what I said in my heart, Rachel, honey, it's not going to be too long now. It's not going to be too long now. Number one, the reunion with our loved ones. Number two, the redemption of our bodies. First John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Philippians 3 and verse 21, Who shall also change our vile bodies, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body. Romans 8 and verse 23, And we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it the redemption of our bodies. I stood in Duke University Hospital January of 1964, and the nurse said this, Ron, you have an eye disease that could eventually cause blindness. She said, one day your wife may have to read to you. She may have to drive for you. She may have to be your eyes. You know the first thing I thought? One day... I'm going to have a new pair of eyes and God's going to wipe away all tears from them. So number one, there's a reunion with our loved ones. Number two, the redemption of our bodies. And finally, number three, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I sat on the platform of a church in Indiana before I was married. The pastor got up and introduced me and he said, Now, before Brother Comfort comes to preach, I would like about ten minutes of testimonies as to why you are looking forward to going to heaven. And I remember as though it were last night. The first person to stand was a big, husky, burly young man. And he said, Pastor, he said, I've got a praying mother that is home in glory tonight. She prayed for years for me to be saved. She died and went to heaven before I got saved. He said, Pastor, to me the most wonderful thing about heaven is going to be that my mother's there and when I get there... I'm going to run down the streets of gold. I'm going to wrap my arms around my mother's neck. And I'm going to say, thank you, Mother. Thank you, Mother, for praying for me. He said, I and a lady stood up. She said, Pastor, you know that we stood by the grave of my little baby one day. And nobody in this place tonight knows a vacuum in my life unless you've experienced it since I lost my baby. She said, to me, the most wonderful thing about heaven... It's going to be reconciliation with my child again. She sat down and the man stood up. said, Pastor, every Wednesday night I ask prayer for my prodigal son. And only God knows the amount of midnight hours I've tossed and turned and wept until there were no more tears to weep. said, to me the most wonderful thing about heaven, there'll be no prodigal sons over there. 
There'll be no heartache over there. But Pastor, as I sat there, I sat there with a heavy heart. Because in ten minutes, nobody stood up and said, I want to go to heaven because I want to see Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't care about the streets of gold. I don't care about the fine mansions. I want to go to heaven because I want to see Jesus Christ. Fanny Crosby, the greatest songwriter the church has ever had, was blind at the age of six months. Never liked to be reminded of her blindness. One day when she was well in her 90s, D.L. Moody was talking to her. And he said, Miss Crosby, if you had one desire of your life fulfilled before you breathed your last breath, what would it be? He said as he stood there, he knew with all of his heart, she'd say, Mr. Moody, I'd love to see a ray of sunshine. I'd love to see a dewdrop fall from a rose petal. But she didn't say that. You know what she said? She said, Mr. Moody, if I had one desire of my life fulfilled before I breathed my last breath, it would be this, that I would remain blind until I died. So the first person to gladden my eyes would be the Son of God Himself. No wonder the songwriter could write, I want to see my Savior first of all, before on any others I would call. And then for countless days, on His dear face I'll gaze. I want to see my Savior first of all. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide and the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him. I shall know Him. As redeemed by His side I shall stand. I shall know Him. I shall know Him. By the print of the nails in His hands. You know who wrote that song? Fanny Crosby. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. Tonight as the instrumentalists come and play, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Let me ask you this tonight. Are you in Christ? Now wait a minute. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I'm not asking you if you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Roman Catholic or a Presbyterian. I'm not asking you that. I'm not asking you if you do the best you can. I'm asking you, has there been a time and a place when you realized you were a sinner, you repented of your sins, you came to Christ, He changed your life. And if Jesus came tonight, you can give me a Bible reason a Bible reason why you know you'd go to meet Him. Now, if you're not sure you're saved, do not be a liar and raise your hand. But if you can give me tonight a Bible reason why you know you're saved, would you kindly slip up your hand, please? If you can give me a Bible reason why you know you're saved, keep your hand up just a moment. If you're not sure, don't raise it. Thank you. You may put them down. There are some who could not raise their hand. 
Thank you for being honest, sir, ma'am, young person. By your not raising your hand, you've admitted to God that you're lost. There's hope for somebody like you. You see, before a person ever gets saved, he's got to admit he's lost. And by your not raising your hand, you've admitted to God that you're lost. Now, I wonder tonight, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that He is the only way to heaven? If you believe all those things, then you believe everything I do except one thing. You must receive Him as your Lord and Savior. You see, the Bible says, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So my question to you tonight is, wouldn't you like to receive Jesus? Wouldn't you like to know that if Jesus came tonight, you'd go to meet Him? You'd say, yes, I would. All right, listen carefully. If you would like to be saved tonight, and you'd say, Brother Comfort, would you remember me in prayer? I'm not sure I'm saved. I want to make sure, include me in the prayer. Would you kindly slip up your hand right now, and I will see your hand and remember you in prayer. Anywhere in this building, you'd say, I'm not sure I'm saved. I want to make sure, include me in the prayer. Just slip up your hand high, please, and I'll see your hand and remember you in prayer. Anywhere in this building. God bless you, young lady. Thank you. Is there another along with this young lady? Include me in the prayer. I too would like to make sure I'm saved tonight. Include me in the prayer along with this young lady. Anyone else? Just slip it up high just before I pray. Anyone else? Include me in the prayer along with this young lady. Anybody else? God bless you back there on my left. Thank you. You may put it down. That's two. Anybody else along with these two? Include me in the prayer. I'd like to make sure tonight I'm saved. Anyone else? All right. Would you two that just raise your hand, would you kindly look at me just a moment, please? I'm not going to embarrass you. Nobody is looking but you and me. This is just between us. Now, when you said, I want to be saved tonight, did you mean it? Did you mean it? Did you mean it? All right. Now, this is what I'll invite you to do. I'll pray for you in just a moment. And after I pray, then we'll stand to sing an invitation song. There are people trained to take the Bible and show you from the Bible how to make sure you're saved. We're not going to embarrass you. We'll not force you in anything beyond your will. We'll just take a Bible and show you how to be saved. So if you meant it, I expect you to come when we stand to sing. Thank you. You may put your head down. Now, let me ask you this. Are there Christians in here tonight that would say, Brother Comfort, if Jesus came tonight, I'd be embarrassed. I'm not ready to meet the Lord. I've got some spiritual house cleaning I need to do. I'm saved, but I'm not ready to meet the Lord. As a Christian, I need to get some things right with God. Pray for me. Slip up your hand, please. God bless you. God bless you all over. God bless you all over. One more thing and then we'll pray. I wonder tonight, are there those in the building who would say, Brother Comfort, in light of the second coming of Christ and the urgency of the hour, on May the 15th, 2006, I'm surrendering my life for full-time Christian service. Tonight, on May the 15th, 2006, I'm surrendering my life for full-time Christian service. Would you pray for me tonight 
I'm surrendering my life for full-time Christian service. Just slip up your hand right now, please, anywhere in the building. Tonight, I'm surrendering my life. God bless you, young lady. On my left there in the middle, young lady, thank you. That's you. Somebody else. Tonight, I'm surrendering my life for full-time Christian service. Anyone else? Anyone else? All right, would you two look at me, please, just a moment. Now, this is what I want you to do. I just don't want you to kneel at the altar. But there will be the pastors standing down here. I want you to take their hand tonight and say, Tonight I'm giving my life for full-time service. We will have somebody pray with you and encourage you as to what you need to do from this point on that you've surrendered your life for full-time service. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we look around us. And we see that things are getting worse and worse. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. And you said this no all show that in the last days perilous times shall come. And we're living in those days of perilous times. And yet, dear God, we're not the pessimist, we're the optimist. We believe the darker the outlook, the brighter the uplook. And we believe that soon Jesus is going to break through the eastern horizon and call us to be home with Himself. And in our minds tonight, it's as though we see the trumpeters wetting their lips and the curtain on the age of grace about to be lowered and the Son of God standing at the exit of heaven. I pray for these two these two ladies tonight who said, I want to be saved, I pray, dear God, that their lives will never be the same as a result of May the 15th, 2006. And then, Lord, for these two young ladies who said, I'm surrendering my life for full-time service, I pray that you'll write on their minds with indelible ink this day when they gave the reins of their will to the Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, I would pray for all of those Christians who said, if Jesus came tonight, I'd be embarrassed. May Christians leave tonight with a new appreciation for the soon return of Christ and stir us with an urgency that what we do, we must do quickly in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Pulpit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We pray that through the challenging preaching of the Word of God today, that you will be encouraged to stay faithful in preaching the Word and hearing the Word. Lester Roloff many years ago said, the world's greatest need is preaching preachers. Let's pray that in this day and this hour, we will stay faithful to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening to The Baptist Pulpit.